This is Why We Write, a podcast of Leslie University. Every episode, we bring you conversations with authors from the Leslie community to talk about books, writing, and the writing life. Today, my guest is Celeste Muhammad. Celeste is a native of Trinidad and a graduate of our MFA in Creative Writing program. And today, we're going to talk about her debut novel, Pleasant View. Celeste, welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad to have you. So happy to be here. (laughs) So glad to talk about your book today. Um, But before we do that, I'd love to learn a little bit more about you. Let the audience kind of um, meet you. Sure. So tell me a little bit about yourself, maybe a little bit about your growing up, what you did before you came to Leslie, all that kind of good stuff. You want me to spill the tea? (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) of course. (laughs) (laughs) It's a safe place. (laughs) Yeah. Um, well, you know, I I was born in Trinidad um, to a mixed race couple. My mother is, is Indian, East Indian descent, and my father is black. And so that, that brought its own unique challenges, mm. uh, of course, you know, uh, growing up multiracial in a multiracial society. I, I was born and I grew up for, in South Trinidad in the um, what we call the second city, San Fernando. And pretty much I went, you know, pretty normal, average childhood. But I always knew I wanted to be a writer. So I started like trying to write my own little books, my own little mystery stories. And so uh, from like seven years old even, but, you know, what we read mostly growing up in my time was a lot of British, British children's books. Mm-hmm. So lots of um, something, I don't know if you would know about the Secret Seven and the Famous Five and Nancy Drew. and Nancy <laughs> Drew, I, I know British. that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, you know, my whole idea of literature and what a person should write and read was very British. Um, until really, I think I really started to encounter West Indian literature, Caribbean literature in high school in a different way. Uh, when I read, especially when I read, uh, A House for Mr. Biswas by V.S. Naipaul, that kind of completely changed things for me because I was like, I really remember that being the first time I read a piece of literature that felt like it was about my life or about the everyday life that I saw Mm. in Trinidad and not about somewhere else, you know? Mm -hmm. So uh, I feel like that kind of solidified my desire to be a writer. However, at the time I was growing up in in Trinidad, uh, your parents kind of uh, had three professions in mind, doctor, (laughs) lawyer, um, engineer, really. (laughs) Yeah. I couldn't be a doctor or an engineer because I'm terrible at math. So, <laughs> so you know, I mean, I, I, I did law. Uh, it's a five-year program in Trinidad. So mm. I, I did law and I practiced for 10 years after that. But the desire to be a writer never never went away. In fact, I think I, I tried very hard to convert the practice of law and writing letters and, and legal memoranda and uh court pleadings I try to convert that into like creative writing (laughs) so you know like I would like people would be like you don't need to say all this you don't need to be this descriptive you don't need to put so much emotion into this is like but I was trying to make it into something it could never be Mm -hmm. you know 
Yeah. And so eventually, um, after 10 years of practice, I kind of had a, a moment when I said, no, I just, you know, I, I've proven myself in this field. I've done what my parents want me to do. And I feel like now I need to press pause and just figure out what I want to do next. And I did. I took a year off to try to decide what I wanted to do. And in that time, I wrote, uh, well, I thought I could write back then. And <laughs> so I wrote this novel and, um, and I applied to Leslie. And um, using a portion of that novel as my submission uh, for my application. And I was quite surprised when, when Stephen Kramer called me and he was like, well, you've been accepted. And I was like, what? <laughs> Uh-oh, now so, I have to do this. <laughs> now I have to like, I have to show up. <laughs> so, you know, so I came into the Leslie MFA program having had another career first and, um, never having been in the U.S. education system before. Mm. And uh, it was it was very different. It was very, and especially, you know, the low, it's a low residency MFA. So you come in, you're going, you're never quite sure whether you're here or there yeah. <laughs> kind of thing, you know. So um, there was a lot of getting used to uh, stuff. But in the end, you know, I wouldn't change a thing. I really, really enjoyed the experience. And... I think the first semester was probably the hardest because, you know, you come in thinking, yes, I can write well. And then you realize, uh, no, you can't. <laughs> you have so much more. You have so much more to learn, you know, but 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 by the end of it, I, I feel like uh, it worked out. Yeah, definitely. Well, and now you have a book. <laughs> um, so yes, let's talk yes. about that. Um, so Pleasant View is a novel of interconnected stories that all take place in that in the titular town, um, mm. which you've made up. It's not it's not a real town, so people can't go it's visit. Not a real town. <laughs> um, no. So I read that you had published several of the stories before. So but how did you mm. begin to realize that this was going to be a cohesive or that they all fit together into one one book. Right. You know, uh, sometimes when I do these interviews, video interviews, I actually show my notebook from Leslie Days. <laughs> and um, there's this one page where I actually, different colored uh, marker pens, actually plotted out uh, Pleasant View. Because uh, to be honest, the two years, for me it was two and a half because I um, – I had, I got pregnant and had to take a little time off to have my baby. So the two and a half years at Leslie, you know how it goes. You, you're really just trying to meet the demands of the program. So um, in my case, submitting at least two stories every month. So I was just writing, 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 writing without thinking about linking anything. But when I sat down to pull my thesis together and had like a complete breakdown in uh the cafeteria <laughs> <laughs> i um i i was like how am i gonna do this i don't know how am i gonna make this all into like a a, th a cohesive thesis and um i kind of realized that thematically maybe not in terms of characters or so but thematically these stories were all somehow linked you know there was like a theme running running through them and so with very little tweaking I just had to like change a couple characters 
put everyone in one town. And once I did those changes, I began to see more and more opportunity for uh, deepening those connections and linkages. And so, yeah, so my thesis was six stories. And um, having written that through, I, I kind of realized where there were gaps. And so in the years following my graduation from Leslie, I started, I wrote like three other stories kind of to fill those gaps and fill out the collection into something more um, more meaningful. Mm. When you say gaps, what what did you feel like was missing? I mean, the story, the story is like, cover quite a range like every character is different and there are a lot of characters yeah what were the holes or what did you want to present it began in a different place and it ended in a different place and I felt that I needed to do something one story before where I was starting and probably one story afterwards one story before in terms of that's why you have a prologue and an epilogue because in my mind I um I felt like people needed an introduction to Pleasant View, the place, before we, we began to get into certain, you know, certain things. And I feel like also the epilogue we needed, after bringing you through Pleasant View and introducing you to all these people, I needed at least in the last story to not tie up loose ends, because I never like to do that, but at mm-hmm. least give you a vision of what the future looks like for some of the characters and and what it will continue to look like. Yeah. So Rachel Manley, who's one of the professors of the MFA program, she wrote your foreword. Um, and yes. she, she wrote that each story in Pleasant View is a strand of a tapestry. So I thought yes. that was a really uh, good setup <laughs> for me reading it mm-hmm. and coming into this. And, yeah. you know, yeah. I don't I don't know anything about Trinidad. Um, and so yes. it was very eye opening for me. I think probably what people think when you think Trinidad and Tobago, you think, you know, beautiful beaches, a, a place to mm-hmm. um, to go on vacation. But the stories are they're pretty dark. Yeah, there's rape, yes. there's abuse, resentment, corruption, poverty, mm-hmm. all of the hard things you could think about. And you say, too, in your bio that you want to dispel myths about island life and island people. So mm-hmm. what are the myths you're dispelling? And like, what is the real Trinidad that you're presenting? Yeah. Well, you know, I think you're probably familiar with this. Uh, Chimamanda uh, Adichie has said in her very famous TED talk, you know, you you tell one story of a people all the time and it becomes the only story, mm. you know, and there's a danger in single stories because single stories create stereotypes and, and stereotypes, it's not that it's not true, it's just that it's incomplete. And I, well, of course, she was talking about Africa mm. and the stereotypes uh, that we have of, Af- of Africa, you know, dark, continent with poverty and mm-hmm. you know lots of animals basically. <laughs> yeah. but um but i have always felt that the same that same logic applies to the caribbean because i feel like we are always presented in popular culture in in media whatever we we are always presented or viewed with one lens of sun sea sand happy go lucky uh easygoing I would even go so far as to say, like, I feel like in the diaspora, Caribbean people are viewed as blackness light, Hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. not to be taken seriously. Hmm. No problems. There are no problems down there, you know, yeah, man. Yeah. 
that that kind of thing and i i that irritates me like i can't even begin to explain to you how much that has always irritated me because um people approach me um you know they approach caribbean people in that vein uh, almost as if you're not to be taken seriously and you're not supposed to ha- deal with heavy issues or you're not supposed to have any issues at all you live on a tropical island mm-hmm. and um i think it makes light of us by casting us in that you know in that one dimensional mode mm-hmm. and i feel like if you want to appreciate us for carnival and for all our talents and successes you can't fully appreciate those things and that's what santimanity is about actually you can't fully appreciate the music and the creativity if you don't understand where it's coming from mm-hmm. it's coming from a place of darkness and it's coming from a place of having to cope and having to find ways to celebrate in spite of you know so um like you asked me why why did i write some of that stories and that was the with the thinking behind santimanity this is a week you know that story is set as a week and you see how how these people deal with their grief and and that is the story of how my little my two islands Trinidad and Tobago that's what carnival that's how carnival started it's an outpour an outpouring of grief transmuted into music hmm. you know so i feel like my job as a caribbean writer is to treat with this subject matter seriously not to make light of it and not to um not to write into what i would call established narratives of caribbeanness so i'm not going to write into those narratives of la di da steel plan steel plan yeah <laughs> i mean those things will feature mm-hmm. of course because they're part of our culture but i don't want to write into those set narratives i, I actually want to challenge them and to show that yeah there, there's is a lot more going on here actually a reader is so weird a reader of mine well not of mine i mean she read the book and she posted a comment or a review online and she actually said she did not know that patriarchy exists in the caribbean and i was like dude <laughs> where does it not exist <laughs> dude <laughs> so wow <laughs> yeah so you know i mean the fact that she would say that i uh, i i i take that uh, that i have been successful yeah. in opening somebody's eyes yeah definitely well yeah and the patriarchy does play a huge role in your book um as yeah. does just the i guess like the multicultural um landscape there and so that was something that i also didn't realize like there's mm-hmm. you know syrian indian and black people I'll play a big part and I was like I I literally had no idea that there would be like Syrian overlords there like I just didn't know yeah um yeah yeah it causes like a lot of animosity and um strife and um definitely like the black people seem to be the ones on the bottom rung of like social Mm -hmm. and economic hierarchy Mm -hmm. um and so I wonder if you would read a passage that kind of talks about this um from the chapter titled white envelope Sure. Um, this is Gail, the protagonist in White Envelope. She's black and she is pregnant for her uh, 
I don't know how her, the man who is keeping her. Mm-hmm. He's a Syrian businessman and she's been with him for a year or so and she's just found out that she's pregnant. And so she's saying, uh, I wonder if I should actually start with the paragraph before. Sure. Just to give a little context. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So she goes to visit the village, see a woman who, you know, uses the a deck of cards to read the future and that kind of thing. And she's trying to um, find out from her whether or not Mr. H, who is her child's father, whether he will stand by her and her pregnancy or whether their relationship is over, whether she will end up alone with this child, right? Mm. If she decides to keep the child. So here we go. I sit down on Miss Ivy couch and almost right away, my thighs start sweating till they glue down on the clear plastic that covering the cushions. While Miss Ivy knocking pan and kettle in the little makeshift kitchen, I take in the whole place. I never been in one of these backhouse apartments before. Miss Ivy have it neat and clean, but it's just one room. Only a wobbly fiberboard screen blocking off she jail style bed. And she'd a share toilet with Mr. Winston, the old man living next door. Through the thin paneling, I hear in his TV on that seven-day Adventist program. I wonder if he might hear what I tell him, Miss Ivy. But I have worse things to worry about. If I don't change Mr. H. mind by Montem, I might be making baby in one of these cardboard box apartments. Nah, no Jesus, not my child, not my half Syrian child. Growing up in Pleasant View, hard enough if you're poor and black, but it worse if you're light skin and have good hair. Then everybody knows some high collar man did take your mother for ass and that you have a fine, respectable daddy who don't want you. You come like a double joke. No, not my child. Mm. So talk a little yeah. bit about multiculturalism and race um, mm-hmm. and kind of the, po- yeah. the power dynamics in the novel. What did you want to say about about that? Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, like you said, a lot of people, when they, again, think of Caribbean, you just think of one, one thing, you know, black, mm-hmm. black people, not understanding that the Caribbean is not a monolith. And, mm. you know, you have the Dutch Caribbean, the French Caribbean, you have the English, British Caribbean, even within the British West Indies, which Trinidad and Tobago is a part of, territories have different racial uh, makeups. So, what had happened is when when Britain abolished slavery, the larger territories, places like Jamaica, Trinidad, uh, Guyana, these larger territories, there was so much free arable land and forest and so uh, that the slaves bolted off the estate and found their own land, just went and, and did their own farming. And so there was, there was a shortage of labor. So these places had to engage in indentured, bringing in indentured labor from different sources. And uh, that's how Trinidad ended up being as multicultural as it is. When they decided to import from India, it seemed the the discussion is that the Indian indentured laborers were well suited to the climate and also to the type of work. So by now, by, by the early 20th century, you have 
the whites, you have the blacks, you have Indians, you have some Chinese, you have all these people already. Mm-hmm. And and then in the in the early 20th century, because of you know instability and so in the Middle East, you begin to have Middle Eastern immigrants coming. And the Syrians would come door to door, like little hucksters, little door to door salesmen with their little suitcases selling stuff, usually fabric. And from that beginning, they are now the, you know, the most wealthy class of people in Trinidad. Hmm. And they control the largest percentage, if you will, of, of the economy. Of course, that has given rise to a lot of resentment. Those tensions and the perception of the Syrian being the interloper, the, the you know, person profiting at the expense of others and that sort of thing. All of these daily tensions that we navigate here, I wanted to bring those into the book and um, kind of just put them out there. This is this is life. This is how we view each other. Yeah. Yeah. So anybody who is just listening to the passage that you read um, could hear that you wrote a lot of the book in dialect um, in the, yes. the Patois. So I admit, like, knowing that when I was going into it, I was a little terrified because I've read yeah. some other books in the past. And I was like, yes. oh, man, this could be a slog. It could take me a long time to figure out what's going right. on, like like trying to read Shakespeare or something. Um, <laughs> 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 but but I really was able to get into it really easily right. yeah. and kind of pick up the cadence of it and, you know, like the turns of phrase. I was like, oh, they're just so clever, too. Um, yeah. So how did you write in a way? Because I imagine, like, if two Trinidadians were speaking and I was just standing there, <laughs> like, I wouldn't pick yes. up a lot of what they were saying. Like, I might understand yes. words, but not get the gist. Yes. So, yes. but you're writing a book that is for people beyond Trinidad, as well mm-hmm. as um, folks in your home country. So how did you write in such a way that everybody would be able to understand without losing that flavor and that essence of the language? Right. That was something I spent the entire time at Leslie trying to figure out. It was, I would say, my major concern uh, in the program. Like, I had been told, you know, and you know, you know how it is. We we go into workshop and we have our pieces workshopped. And at one or two workshops, I had been told, oh no, this is like, whoa, this is <laughs> too much. We can't read this, you know. And so for me. At first, you know, there are two things you can do when faced with a situation like that. You can be offended and be like, no, this is my culture and blah, 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 blah. Or you can see opportunity in it. And I eventually saw an opportunity to sort of calibrate how I was writing to be able to be like at that perfect line between authenticity and readability. You know, so mm-hmm. I, I started to, it became very fun to experiment with, you know, while I was at Leslie and to write, say, okay, let me try writing a little bit more this way or this way. Let me try phonetical spellings. Let me try not doing that. Let me try syn- syntactical change. You know, let me try different things to see how people respond. So it was almost like a, I was in like a little lab experiment at Leslie. So by the time I left, I kind of had 
I was almost there, not quite there. And uh, then my one of my mentors, Michael Lowenthal, he he commented on a piece I had written, and he said, "Listen, either you go all in, or you don't go in at all. But you're inconsistent. You're, you're being inconsistent." Um, and nobody will follow what, what you're doing. If you are inconsistent, you have to, whatever you try to do, you can train your reader to follow you, but you have to be consistent. Mm-hmm. And I, I took his advice to heart and I started trying to find a consistent style so that I could train my reader. This is how, this is what you need to know to be able to, um, to read this book. And in the end, I think I'm, I'm happy with where it, it ended up. I did find a style that works for me. I, I had to study what other people have done. When I say other people like um, V.S. Naipaul, Sam Selvon, those are, you know, uh, classic, mem- you know, those are people in the West Indian canon, if you will. Mm-hmm. But I stopped reading what other contemporary Caribbean writers were doing while I was working on this book, because I didn't want to know how mm-hmm. people were, what decisions they were making to deal with the issues I had. I wanted to see what the masters had done. And then I wanted to find my own style. Along with the dialect, you have, as I said before, you do have a lot of characters in your book. And I feel like each one has their own voice. And that that, yeah. that was really unique. And um, I imagine that's pretty hard to pull off as well. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So where did you get your characters from? Like, um, mm-hmm. one of the people that stuck out the most to me was Miss Ivy, who <laughs> was men- <laughs> she was mentioned um, earlier. And she she's this older woman. She used to work for Mr. H, who's had a lot of affairs. And she walks around in this tropical climate <laughs> wearing the fur coat that um, Mr. Mrs. H gave her. You know, like, I'm kind of like, I can almost imagine this older yes. woman trying walking like dignified down the street with a fur coat on and it's 85 degrees outside um <laughs> like where yes. how did these people come to you <laughs> well you know that is another thing that people don't know about trinidad i can't like i hesitate to speak for the entire caribbean but certain certainly trinidad there is no shortage of material here like uh, if you speak to someone who's actually living in trinidad currently and who has read this book they will tell you that the book reads almost as if this is happening right now because it it is in a sense happening mm-hmm. right now you know you know uh, margaret atwood has has been quoted as saying everything i've ever written has been true somewhere for somebody someone at some time something like that right mm-hmm. and it's that's the case because trinidad is full of characters like mm-hmm. it was not hard to come up with these characters because like it would be as simple as looking at my own family mm-hmm. or looking at um, the news you know there's 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 a lot a lot that is in this book is very close to nonfiction in terms of the inspiration for it um, and I laughed when you said Miss Ivy because Everyone loves Miss Ivy. Everyone <laughs> wants to talk about Miss Ivy. Um, and she appears and think, quite often in the book, too. You know, some people yes. only basically get a chapter, but she's she keeps popping up. Right. And I think that's because I loved her so much. So I kept putting her in, in, in everything. Yeah. <laughs> but but also, um, 
I think that's a testament to the fact that every, I, I feel maybe in the US it's the same in smaller villages and towns or wherever. There's always this one woman, we, we would call her a tanti, this one older woman in the village who is like revered, feared, you know, who, every, who knows all the stories of everybody else, you know, mm-hmm. and she, she feels comfortable. She could tell anybody anything she wants, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and you just have to take so, it. <laughs> you just have to take it. You just have to take it. Yeah. Yeah. She was great. Um, so in the book, um, you know, even though it is a novel in short stories, it's still short stories. And yes. so not all of the characters' stories get wrapped up. Like, we mm-hmm. don't know the fate of every person there. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious, will they will we see them again somewhere? Like there's Jason, I think is it Jason whose father had left for America and now, you know, he's kind of like flirting with Muslim extremists. Yeah, no, I feel like, are they I done? Feel like, <laughs> yes. I feel, well, I don't know if they, they are done, but I'm done. Okay. Um, I, I, I feel like I'm pretty much done, but that Jason's, that story with Jason, the last story, the epilogue was really, I, and this is another thing I feel like North Americans are not aware of. During the whole ISIS period uh, in recent history, most people don't realize, uh, unless you've watched one of the documentaries done by the BBC or Al Jazeera News or some other you know, news outlet, you would not know that in the Western Hemisphere, the highest per capita uh, number of recruits to ISIS came from Trinidad. Hmm. You wouldn't know that, right? That's no, not something you would I had ever no idea. hear, right? <laughs> yeah. So uh, when I heard that, when I learned that, and we, you know, we here, we we've seen all the documentaries uh, trying to dissect that statistic. I wondered why is that so? What is it about here? We are not the only Caribbean country with Muslim people, mm-hmm. but what is it about here that makes boys? Uh, that radicalizes boys or makes them feel that there's a better life for them there, mm-hmm. you know? So, and that, that alone, that statistic alone should tell you that the perception of the Caribbean and what is actually happening here may not be, yeah, you know, in sync. So that is what that la- last story was meant to do. It was almost like me trying to explore, put myself in, in the, in the mind of a, a, a young boy looking at the kind of life he, he would have been living and how does how does somebody like that come to make those kinds of decisions? Um, and I wanted to sh- kind of see, not only is the this the epilogue for him, based on what you've seen before, you know, seeing him now at 12 years old, but also I wanted people to think of the future. If we don't address the societal, you know, forces that 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 encourage this then looking forward into the future just as you look forward and you wonder what's going to happen to him that's the question i want to leave you with what is going to happen to these boys Mm -hmm. yeah you know yeah that's yeah it's a powerful place to end the book so um i just have two more questions left one what are you working on next well, I I did go back to that novel that I had used to apply to Leslie. I, I did go back to it. So now that I can write a little bit better, 
<laughs> so I have that on my desk. I have a couple children's books I'm I'm working on mm. as well. Uh, because like I said, I had my daughter while I was at Leslie. And um, I kind of felt actually during the pandemic, I could not get books in because usually I would I would order books from abroad. And I couldn't get any books in. And I began to think, you know what? Why don't I write a story for her? Yeah. You know, and, and just the same way I want to see my culture and my everyday uh, reflected in the books I read, maybe she feels the same way, mm-hmm. you know. So I, I'm working on a couple of children's books. And, um, yeah, I have a good few things on my desk. And I did not yeah. estimate how much work book promotion is. So I'm always <laughs> having to do write something for that, that, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Yeah, I bet. I bet that's a lot of work. I know writers yeah. have to do a lot of the marketing themselves these days. Yeah, it's like yeah. having homework that never ends. <laughs> Fun. <laughs> Fun. But it's a great book. Um, and <laughs> so my other question, our last question, what advice now that you've gone through the whole process, you've got your MFA, you have your first book, what advice do you give to writers or what's something you wish you had known going into this process? Firstly, use the time at Leslie, if you're a writer coming through the Leslie um, MFA program, use the time to find your voice and to get to know yourself as a writer. Because, you know, you kind of assume, yeah, I know myself, but you don't really know yourself as a writer unless you make the effort to. Mm-hmm. Uh, to know what works for you, what doesn't work for you. Um, we often ask other people, what is your writing schedule or, or how do you write? When do you, you know, and we try to emulate what other people are doing. But really what, what I feel you need to do is to really listen to yourself, look, listen to your own rhythms, listen to the things that are bubbling up inside of you, the things that mean something to you that you feel like you want to talk about. And get to know yourself as a writer and go with that because you can, you can never be anybody else. You can only mm. ever be yourself. That's the only thing that can be consistent enough to complete a book, you know, because yeah. it takes a while. Yeah. <laughs> and also I would say that my writing changed for the better the day I became willing to embrace criticism. Um, and that happened while at Leslie too. It happened actually in my last semester at Leslie when I just was prepared to assume, stop fighting and assume that everything that my mentors, uh, everything they were telling me was, was, was right. Mm-hmm. Um, and that changed my outlook on, on their feedback. And it also, I mean, in the end, I would not necessarily ac- accept everything that they said and, and do everything that they said, but for starting off from a, from the point of view of assuming that everything that they're telling me I should take on board, it changed my writing for the better. And I, I became somebody, and I still am, somebody who actually enjoys rigorous criticism from my mentors, and I look forward to it because I have the experience now that criticism can only make my work better. It's hard. It's hard to take criticism. but It is hard. I mean, I still yeah. cry. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then you're like, okay, maybe they're right. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been delightful. 
Thank you for having me. It's always great to be able to be in touch with Leslie Folk and, and to talk about the experience. Well, I'm glad we are able to highlight it today. Um, again, the book is called Pleasant View. It's available wherever books are sold. And you can check out the show notes for more information on Celeste, as well as our low residency MFA in creative writing program. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a nice review. If you're not on Apple Podcasts, tell a friend who likes writing and reading about the podcast. Yeah, and thanks for listening. And we'll be back in two weeks.